Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode, drumroll, 401. Oh my goodness, I've been around that long. <laughs> I've been growing old with all of you. I'm just so excited. So here's episode 401 of Her, the podcast where, well, you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her protein. What? Oh, and you thought that was only for men. You've got things to learn. Listen, before we begin this terrific show with a friend and colleague and world-renowned protein expert, I just want you to know that this episode is made possible by our wonderful friends at Solaray Vitamins. And at Solaray, you can find everything you want for a woman. You know, you know, you try to eat everything you're supposed to with whole foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I've heard it all. Sometimes food is not enough because we're all nutcases running around like crazy people not eating what we're supposed to be eating. So how about that multivitamin, especially the liposomal? So run on over to solaray.com and learn more. This is also your very first reminder to hit iTunes right after the episode in rate and review because I just love reading this. The whole team loves getting your feedback. You'll get another reminder a little bit later on. Okay, it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about Her. (sighs) Well, here we are at the end of another year, and I know what's going to be happening. You're all saying to yourselves, I want to get more fit in the new year, and resolutions, and all this stuff, and and back and forth. And one of the first things you say to yourself is, I got to clean up my nutrition, you know, really? You know, the croissants in the morning, mm, not cutting it. Got to be able to do this right. And one of the most important essential macronutrients is protein. And yep, it's protein. And I couldn't think of a better expert anywhere than my wonderful friend and colleague, Dr. Stuart Phillips, who joins us. So Dr. Phillips is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skeletal Muscle Health. I'm exhausted just saying that. He is the director of the Physical Activity Center of Excellence and the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research. (sighs) Basically, he's a world-renowned protein expert in all things metabolism, and you know I'm on the board of uh, trustees of the American College of Sports Medicine and a senior Olympic triathlete, and uh, Stuart is a fellow, along with me, of the American College of Sports Medicine, which is how we know each other. Stuart, welcome to the Herb Podcast. My, My pleasure, Pam. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, now you got to help set the record straight. Things are just a mess out there. You know, I think the word for 2022 is misinformation. And, um, you know, I'd just like to start so simply. We've had so many um, women ask, well, gosh, you know, why is protein so important? And is it okay if I just leave it all until dinner or lunch? Um, So let's start first with the health benefits of protein. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the key points I like to make to people is that, uh, you know, of all the macronutrients, carbohydrates and fats are basically fuel for your body. Uh, but protein uh, contains amino acids, which are the structural building blocks of every tissue we have in our body, including, you know, most notably muscles, but our skin, our liver, even bone is 40% by composition protein. So, I think that that's the distinction that makes it so important and you do require it on a daily basis and it supports immune function and all kinds of things. So it's really, uh, I I call it the building block and and that's really what distinguishes it from uh, other macronutrients. So we talk about uh, immune function, we talk about preservation of muscle, we talk about preservation of bone uh, and those are all things as people get older they really need to worry about. Absolutely. And there's some surprises um, with, with protein. Um, and, and I think you mentioned the word bone. So I, I remember the first time I actually read this a a while back, uh, not really acquainting protein with bone. Um, everyone thinks of calcium and magnesium and all the rest of it. So what's the connection with bone and protein? 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, 40% uh, by composition of your uh, of bone is protein. It's uh, the most abundant protein in your body is something called collagen, and uh, we need collagen in our bones. If they they're not just sticks of chalk, you know, they do bend a little bit, and that prevents them from fracturing. And as long as you have calcium and and vitamin D dialed in to, to the levels that you need them, so we're at least a thousand milligrams of uh, of calcium and we can argue about vitamin D, but let's say six to 800 international units, then protein is a bone supportive nutrient. So uh, I think a lot of people sort of go, wow, that's that's news. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it actually helps bone formation and prevents demineralization in, uh, after menopause as well. Absolutely. All right. So Women off times, and after having studied women for decades now, I can absolutely attest, I'll speak for all of womanhood here, you know, women, women usually cram protein into one meal. All right, so tell us why this is probably not the best way to go. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you're speaking for all womanhood. I, I would never uh, deign to, to try something like that. But but I'll say this is that, uh, you know, the first, the, 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 I think the prescriptive rider statement is, you know, it's been our take for about 25 years that have been studying protein now that the recommended dietary allowance is, is too low, uh, particularly as we get older. So that's 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. And we think that people should be consuming closer to about 1.2, so 50% greater, maybe even as high as 1.6, so 100% greater. And most people tend to consume it, as you said, in sort of a skewed fashion. So a small amount at breakfast, a moderate amount at lunch, but then the largest amount at the dinnertime meal. Um, and the probably better or more efficient, if you want to call it that, way to consume protein is to add some more protein, particularly at the breakfast meal as a sort of, uh, you know, patterning meal for the day and breaking your fast and it's the first opportunity your body has to make use of what you give it. And I try to talk lots of people into putting something protein rich in their breakfast meal uh, to sort of get the system going and, and promote synthesis of new proteins which are constantly being turned over. Well, you know, it's interesting. People, I don't really think people, well, women, we're going to go with women here, really lead a protein-centric life. You know, in other words, they're like, oh, just, you know, grab and go, dashboard dining, you know, just whatever, and, and something just to put in your mouth. Um, without really having a strategy or a plan um, to be able to say, well, wait a minute now, I need protein for like a whole host of reasons. I'm aging, no matter what age you are right now, and I want to do this so I'm laying down a strong foundation. So immediately top of mind with breakfast, you know, and I love that patterning for the day, you know, concept, which I think is brilliant. Um, you know, what are you already thinking about? And I think a lot of women think, well, you know, you're going to have to have spend a lot of time, you know, cranking out an omelet or, you know, going like there. Hey, what about yogurt? Just saying, you know, I mean, it's 15 grams right there. Boom. And if you think, if you do some math, let, let's do some math. Well, what about a woman who is say about, you know, 150 pounds, you know, uh, and uh, maybe five foot seven. And uh, if you look at that one point, two to 1.6-ish kind of situation, you know, you're looking at 100 grams, you know. Um, I'm just doing some quick math. Yeah. I'm, I'm that good. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> so you know, she's got to say to herself, well, you know, how am I going to get 100 grams in here? Well, right off the bat, if you add some walnuts into your um, Icelandic yogurt, which I love, right, that's 20 grams right there. Boom. All right. And now all you got to do is worry about the other 80. And then think about that. Until you think about protein, you know, it's so interesting. So many women think about eliminating things. Oh, I can't have refined sugar. I can't have all those fats. I can't, you know, well, wait a minute. When it comes to protein, it's like, yes, you can have protein. And it's more of a positive thing. So you're saying you're arguing to spread it out throughout the entire day, which also... I mean, uh, makes her feel more satisfied, yes? Yeah, the, the, the what we call satiety impact of protein, so how full you feel when you eat it, uh, is greater for protein than it is for carbohydrates or fats. So you've, you, when you eat a protein-rich meal, 
you feel sated and you actually, you're like, I, I'm full, I don't need to eat anymore. And so it, it, it helps regulate appetite. And that's been one of the reasons why people focus on protein during, you know, weight reducing diets, for example. So yeah, satiation is, is better for protein than it is for carbohydrates and fats. You know, I'm um, uh, uh, someone who practices time-restricted uh, eating. You know, one of my best friends is Sachin Panda. <laughs> and um, what a brilliant mind. Uh, and, you know, I have found uh, that it really, that added to this because so many of our listeners are also doing some form of time-restricted eating because they read the science. It all sounded, you know, like it made sense. And who wants to be eating dinner at midnight and, you know, circadian rhythm metabolism. So all that's good. So it, if anything, it even focuses you further because now you have, for me, I do it within a window of 14 to 16 hours um, for my fasting period. So that only leaves me eight to 10 hours to eat. So I got to be strategic about this. And I got to really be putting some thought into this. There's no, you know, going by the seat of my pants here. So I'm glad, you know, when you said that word, you come out of your fasted period. Well, you know, I think some people were also saying, well, I can't cram all that in there during that time. It's actually a little easier than you think, no? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for a lot of people, you know, breakfast, because we've been taught this is the way to do things, it's, uh, you know, a heart-healthy breakfast is fiber-rich, tends to be rich in carbohydrates, and not that that's a bad message, but, you know, you named my probably two best uh, breakfast time additions. It's either Greek style or Icelandic style skier or whatever. Um, they're they're protein-rich, uh, yogurt, I, I mean, the, the health benefits just keep on coming. So uh, I really try and emphasize that for people. I, I love nuts uh, as a sort of a, a dressing on top of the yogurt. Uh, I'm, I'm also, you know, I'm a pretty big fan of eggs, very cheap, very affordable, lots of nutrients we don't get in abundance. And, you know, they've, got, they've gone off the dirty list as far as the dietary guidelines. So we have, you know, it's okay to eat an egg week in my, my center downstairs and probably relieve the anxiety of a lot of uh, older people who have grown up with the message that eggs, cholesterol, heart disease, you know, they're going to, uh, and, and we just say, you know what, they're, they're a very nutrient-rich protein source and, you know, lot, lots of other foods that you could say these are breakfast foods and they're very palatable and you just have to think a little bit more maybe about adding those to your breakfast time meal. And, and you'd notice a difference, I think. It's the satiety and the fullness and yeah, it's like I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm sated. So that's the big difference I think most people know. Go protein. Yay. So we're, we're, we're the cheerleaders here. Um, and all right, now going back to the original proposition we have women out there who are saying, okay, we get the message, we want to get healthy, fit, all the rest of it, and I'm going to spread out my protein and everything. Are there better proteins than others? Um, you know, when you make those little smoothies, when you, you know, like where are the, where are the kingpin proteins here? Yeah, you know, this is something uh, on which I've, I've, I've changed, well, I would say I've changed my mind. I mean, new science happens and you, and you just sort of say, oh, well, this is, you know, so if you'd asked me this question 20 years ago, and I think it's sort of unequivocal, you'd have said, you know, animal-based proteins are superior to plant-based proteins because they're, they've got more of the, what we call essential amino acids. And, you know, there's 20 amino acids, they're the building blocks of protein, nine are essential, and the more we have of those, we, we need those in our diet. In other words, we can make the other 11, but we need those nine. And so proteins are graded specific to how many amino, essential amino acids they have and then how digestible they are as well. And so plants are a little tougher for people to digest. They've got dietary fiber and they've got these so-called anti-nutrients that tend to lower protein quality. You know, fast forward uh, to today and we're in a, uh, a space where I think Plant proteins are much more available. Uh, they're easier to find than they probably have ever been. Uh, and when we talk about plant protein, you know, powders or isolates, we've taken out the anti-nutritional component or the dietary fiber component completely. And a lot of plant proteins compete just as well as animal-based proteins. I don't think there's any, you know, a doubt that the best 
proteins out there are probably dairy-based, um, milk and yogurt and everything like that, cheese. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot softer on the message that, you know, thou shalt get uh, animal-based protein is the best versus plant. Uh, the way I see it now, and I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's been a change in mindset with new science. Um, and uh, the, the, they're probably just as good as each other. You might have to eat a little bit more plant-based protein to make up for the lower quality, but the, the choices in foods that are available now make it much easier to do than, well, five or 10 or let alone 20 years ago. So um, I, I've softened my stance on that one. Me too, you know, and you know, for all these, uh, well, you know, our population is changing. Um, you know, it's diverse, multi-ethnic, and a lot of people are vegetarian um, and even vegan. And so if that's true, you know, they've not been able to avail themselves of something like, you know, a whey protein powder, um, because that's obviously not. And so uh, now you have pea powder and you have all kinds of other alternatives that are more digestible uh, by the human, you know, system. And uh, I think now you can have more accessible ways to add protein into your diet, you know, with a, just a small shake here and there to kind of uh, add in a little bit and back and forth. So I'm, I'm doing the happy dance over this new option that we have, which is, which is excellent, which now brings us over to our lady who wants to be fit. All right. So let's just say she's sort of flexitarian. All right. And, and she's just, you know, adventuresome and she could look a lot of different ways of doing this. Now, um, you know, she's only done some walking, you know, pretty much. Now she's going to uh, really be adventuresome and uh, start lifting some weights and start doing more body weight thing. That's right. Excuse me while I play. Um, excuse me. All good. <laughs> so I know we're horribly biased out there. I, I, I know. Yeah, it's probably I'm preaching to the converted, I'm sure, but that's OK. Yeah, I know. Here you go. So you know, the, the question is, is there a better time to consume your protein relative to fitness? So, you know, that, that's an interesting question. All we ever have out there, honestly, you know, and with all due respect to my, my brother, brethren out there, is a bunch of bro stuff, you know, for muscle builders and bodybuilders and power lifters, you know, all of whom say, oh, yeah. and then they take in 50 grams of protein after a workout and you're like, whoa, you know, wait a minute now. So what's a woman to do uh, now that she's picking up this fitness um, how should she consume protein um, around workout times? And I'm really talking mostly about strength training type situations. Yeah. I mean, well, first, you know, you can't ask me that question without me popping in a little comment about, you know, being stronger and lifting is, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably historically just one of these things that that's what men did and you know the women did it was only aerobic work for me and so hopefully there's nobody that's listening that says you know oh, weights it's just I don't want to get big and bulky it, it just doesn't happen you know um, and as we get older uh, a big part of our research program has been the emphasis on being stronger as you get older and, and that being a, a sort of an anti-frailty or whatever you want to call it but also anti-chronic disease just like aerobic exercise so a combination of the two is perfect so um, but it, I think the message is fairly simple in that post-exercise right after you've exercised is a time when I tell athletes your muscle is like a sponge it's ready to absorb nutrients, it's ready to make new proteins, to get better, to recover from the stress of exercise. Because exercise is a stressor um, and, and repair itself and, and, and get better. Um, now the crucial nature of that, uh, you, you know, you go to the gym and you see a lot of, uh, like they're your bros, right? And they've got the shaker and they're, you know, as soon as it's done, they're drinking it. I don't think it's that critical, but um, there's probably a window of uh, at least I'd say 10 to 12 hours after you've lifted where just about every protein containing meal that you're going to have or shake or snack or something is going to do some beneficial, um, you know, something good for your muscles, let's say. So post-exercise is the time where you would like to see protein consumed, but, you know, the the uh, this window of anabolic sensitivity, as it's known, uh, is probably open for a lot longer than we thought. 
Excellent. And, you know, is there a, you know, this is an interesting question. Um, based upon circadian rhythm, is there a better time of day to exercise and consume protein or does it matter? Because remember, when it comes to carbohydrate, insulin sensitivity is much greater in the morning, in the early afternoon, and you know, not at midnight, which is when you could just pack on pounds. So just looking at protein metabolism. Yeah, um, I, I may be a little bit jaded on the, the timing issue as much as... Um, you know, because so few people, when we when we look at these surveys, actually lift weights at all. So I'm I'm more a fan of like just just lift weights, and they say when does it when is it best? And so if you're lifting weights, and maybe you really wanted to take advantage of the better time, uh, it does appear it's it, it's sort of similar message to the aerobic question around insulin sensitivity, and a lot of the benefit comes from working out later in the day. Now I'll be honest, um, I love working out. But I'm an early morning person, so it's this the first thing I do in the morning, and and it I just feel right after I've done it, everything's good. Um, I don't think that it's a big effect in difference in ter terms of time of day, but so fit it in when you can fit it in is sort of more my practical message. But blood pressure lowering and some of the other health effects do tend to be more pronounced if you're doing it later uh, in the day, let's say. So. Uh, that's that's the nuance or the devil that's in the details, so to speak, but uh, maybe not what uh, um, somebody who's not lifting weights needs to hear. It's like, just just get in there and do it consistently. Yeah. Um, so when people ask me that question, you know, what's the best time? I said, whatever works for you. Honey, I'm so happy you got up and, you know, you're heading to the gym. I can't even stand myself. So, yeah, it, it's whatever works. I mean, you know, if you're if you're not talking about elite athletics, that's a whole different ball game where, where it's a science and these athletes are science fair projects. Um, you and I are, are human beings just trying to make it work. Mere, mere mortals, I, I refer to myself. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm not the elite. I'm not the creme. I'm just, I'm just looking to, you know, live a healthier, better, longer life. Yeah, well, th this morning I had to come down from Mount Olympus to, to do this uh, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, what a joke, right? Um, oh, my goodness gracious. All right. So, all right. Now we understand how much protein you have protein options. This is a good thing. Um, combining it with physical activity, it's, it's sometime afterwards, and that's all good, and that's great. So now there's been some confusion more uh, from Dr. Google um, and, and his associates, her associates, whatever, um, on the internet about longevity and protein. So, you know, some people are going, oh, you know, and we start, you know, invoking little Mr. mTOR. We'll explain that. Um, and and what's, what's best, you know, for the aging body? Um, so help us understand that. You know, this is important because, you know, people in our audience, um, Stu, are intergenerational. So we've got people just, you know, starting out, you know, they're 20 and everything. Then you got people who are already 60 and over saying, well, wait a minute, am I supposed to be doing the same thing as someone who was, you know, who's 20 and 30 and whatever? Does the game change? Yeah, so I think most of this argument is or, or, or conjecture is, is around uh, studies that have come from lab animals. And I mean, it, it goes from, you know, fruit flies, which are frequently used animal model to I'll call them small mammals, so um, generally mice or rats or something like that. Um, when we look at those data, I think that it's pretty convincing that if you calorically restrict, so energy restriction um, or protein restriction, uh, these animals will, will live longer. Uh, I, I think, and, and, and the science is, is top-notch, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, I think the translation of those data to to humans is is much tougher to make, and so there's several observations that I sort of point to and, and say, you know, is this something that we can, you know, readily translate to people? Uh, first of all, we are relatively long-lived, and we're an outbred species. We don't, you know, we're not like lab animals that all look the same and come from the same strain, uh, and are relatively short-lived uh, by comparison. Uh, they tend to be, you know, housed in cages. They tend not to have access to uh, running wheels or any sort of exercise. 
And, you know, here we are talking about the benefits of exercise. So a lot of my comments would probably be, you know, predicated against, you know, this is against the background of somebody who's fairly active. And, you know, by comparison, I'm not sure that we can make the same parallels with the animals that are in these studies. I think the other point is um, I'm, I'm a big um, believer now in, in, in the fact that older people as they get older have these sort of disuse events and I, I you know it's a hospitalization or you know maybe you got COVID and and, and you had to spend some time in hospital and these disuse events are they're actually the key moments when humans age when they tend to go downhill really fast and it's really tough for, for an older person to recover from those um, and I, I think that that's where muscle and, you know, sort of a reserve, if you want to call it that, um, of protein is actually tremendously beneficial and, and, and a high functioning immune system would be really beneficial. And none of these animals ever experience these events, but they're very common as we, or I say very common, they're more common as we get older. And it's something that you want to sort of, you know, struggle through and have a reserve to um, dip into. And, and that's really about muscle and that's a protein centric tissue that we like to support. Uh, so I, I, I'm not as sure that we can take activation eventor, which is this key uh, protein sensing, amino acid sensing uh, protein that is involved in cancer and lots of other things and say, this is what happens in these short-lived inbred uh, animals, and we think it happens in humans. Because when you look at the observational data, and so these are like we're just looking at people and saying, what are they eating? Uh, I think it's much less clear that protein is a, an, is a non-longevity promoting nutrient. I think that that's, uh, and we don't have, you know, everybody goes, well, what about studies? And I'm like, well, we, you know, we need somebody control for their entire lifetime, you know, so it doesn't happen. So we have to rely on observations. And there it, it's very gray. And uh, I'm, I'm less uh, of, a, I'm less convinced that it's something that I would restrict to promote longevity. I'm more a fan of I definitely know that exercise is going to promote longevity. Now let's do all we can to support the benefits of exercise. And protein in that sort of circumstance, it's, uh, to me, it's undeniable that it's, ne it's necessary. I love it. And, and what you say makes all the sense. Um, since we're both uh, cl scientists, clinical scientists, you know, uh, I, I've read the rodent data, um, and you and I both know all the researchers. And um, it's... it's I just know that a lot of people have been reading this and they're scratching their heads saying, but, 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 you know, wait a minute, you said protein was important. Now, here's something else I'll throw into the mix, the blue zoners. So here you have a situation where obviously we haven't followed them since the moment they were born, but we certainly know, you know, what they're living like right now in Sardinia and Okinawa, Loma Linda, all the rest of it. So what can we learn from these blue zoners, uh, many of whom have, you know, these large clusters of centenarians? I've actually visited uh, one of them. Well, I've been to Loma Linda, but, um, and that was uh, Nicoya um, in Costa Rica. Um, I was extremely, um, uh, you know, happy to have met Panchita, who was featured in Blue Zone, um, when she was 109, and uh, I'll share my experience, but from you um, looking at how these people eat and live now, what do you think um, that we've learned? Have we learned anything to help clarify some of this? Maybe kind of, <laughs> sort of? Yeah. So blue zones are fascinating. They're the, like you said, they're these pockets of, uh, of people that, you know, the, the incidence of centenarians is just much higher than normal and lifespan is longer. And so people have looked at these blue zones and said, you know, what do they have in common that is sort of allowing them to live these longer lives? And they've said, you know, look, here's the diet. It tends to be lower in protein. There's legumes as, as their protein source and not, you know, peas, beans, any legume, great protein source. Don't get me wrong. Um, and they've said, well, look, you know, this is, this is the key. And, you know, my point is, well, first of all, that's true. Uh, they always lived near something blue, so the water, you know, whatever you want to sort of add to that. They walk everywhere. 
they're extremely physically active people. Um, and so I don't think you can dismiss that as a, a factor that contributes. They, they tend to cluster as well. And so there must be some genetic predisposition in that area with people who don't migrate away for longevity. And so, you know, uh, you're only, you're born with what you've got. And so you better make the, the best of it. And one of the key things from a social standpoint is there's there's a lack of ageism in the society that they live. Um, older people are respected. Uh, they're not sort of set aside and said, you know, you, you're old, you know, we're going to stick you over here. They're consulted. They're still part of the social fabric. Um, and they're in, in a sense, they're treated closer to equals than we would sort of treat, I, I say, the average older person. You know, they're slower. They're, yes, they're slower. But it doesn't mean that we sort of, you know, we push them aside. And so I think there's a multitude of factors that you could probably point to and say, you know, these are part of a cluster of things that go together that probably do, uh, when they're combined, result in extraordinary longevity. But I don't think you can dismiss, when you, particularly when you look at the geographical uh, location where these uh, traits persist, of, of a genetic predisposition. Um, we've got a 104-year-old that works out in our center here, and uh, he doesn't do anything special. And it's a, it's a guy, too, which makes it a little bit. I always tell him, I'm like, you're my, you're my aging hero, you know? Um, and, and he doesn't do anything special. He, he just, he, he gets out, he walks. Occasionally he comes in here, not as often as he used to, admittedly, but, um, and he's a, he's a social guy. He chats with people. Um, and maybe, you know, that's the reason why he's around, but uh, he doesn't do anything special from a dietary standpoint. And, you know, there's lots of other examples. Um, so I, I, I love the fact that the way you answered this, Stu, was you, you looked at it as a holistic ecosystem. And, and that's really what I saw when I went to Costa Rica. Um, it was interesting when I went, it was just one of these happenstance lucky things that where I was staying was fairly close to Nicoya. And, um, uh, I, I thought, okay. And I got a translator with a Jeep. Um, and, uh, they said, okay, we're going to head off to Mansion, which means mansion, which is the antithesis of what I saw. Um, so what you saw was a jungle. Yeah, it's very humble abodes. Yeah, and sweet people all through the jungle, yeah. Yeah. Um, magnificent and just incredibly beautiful. And you know, Panchita, um, which anyone could read about uh, in in the original Blue Zone book, um, was a woman who had get the. And to your point, I'm going to say I'm affirming everything you said. She had seven generations alive at the same time. And she literally was, um, you know, Costa Rica's kind of queen. Um, and to your point, every single day that she humanly possibly could, she walked three miles to and from a special little place where she picked up certain food items, right? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't Cheetos. Um, it was whole foods that she normally couldn't grow where she was. She had chickens, she had vegetables growing, and she had three generations of her family helping her kind of grow all this and make it all happen and back and forth. She lived close to the sea. It's Costa Rica after all. Um, and, you know, what was fascinating, <laughs> this, this is one that I laughed at. I'm sorry, you're going to have to go with me on this one. So when I went up there, her great-granddaughter was her caregiver. Now, just think about that for a second. She's 109 great-granddaughter caregiver. You know, I mean, she's already, you know, whatever, 70-something. And, and she said, would you sign the guest book? And I said, well, I'd be honored. Now, mind you, there are no phones up there. There's no way to communicate. I mean, I just, you know, showed up. I was like, hi, how you doing? <laughs> and so I said, wow. You know, so I wrote down, I was uh, at that time writing a piece for U.S. News and World Report on going to Nicoya. And so I was a journalist, medical journalist, um, at the same time a physician, obviously. And she looked down, she goes, oh my goodness, we've made history. And I said, really? And, and she said, yeah, she's 109. No doctor has ever visited here. And I said, no wonder she's 109. Keep these people <laughs> away from her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It, I, I say, so there's, no, there's not an abundance of medical technology that are keeping people alive. And these people just live, it's very simple living. And, and I think we could learn a lesson about no telephones as well. Well, so, there's one uh, last piece. <laughs> and and this, you said you're 104-year-old, kind of your hero. You know, uh, Panchita is kind of where it's at. So Panchita just turned 109. And this was like November that year. And I was out there in December. And uh, what was interesting was, you know, you think about health span and lifespan. Lifespan simply meaning the chronological number of years you're alive. I mean, whether you're miserable or not, or half dead, is a whole different ball game. But lifespan, health span, are the years you could just go out there and kick ass. I mean, just keep keep it going relative to your age. All right, so you're living a robust and vibrant life relative to your age. So here she is, 109, and what was fascinating, and, and, and this was all, all written down because she, she passed at the age of 110. The moment she turned 109, she kept asking her caregivers, um, is it my birthday yet? And, and they said, well, you just had one, 109. She goes, no, 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 110. And she kept asking that week after week throughout the year and they were all mystified because she never asked that before so when she hit 110 and it's all over the newspapers in costa rica you know there was just like this monster celebration i mean you know like hundreds of people showed up and it was just amazing and, and back and forth and she had the time of her life and that was it next day she woke up had a stroke dead and and so here's the way i want to go <laughs> yeah yeah. I want to I want to kick it all the way until whatever the heck and then literally spend 0.01% being miserable and dying. Literally isn't that the way the graph goes? You you just got you know health span health span health span boom you're gone. Yeah. They call it compressed morbidity. So in, instead of I mean it's interesting you know in Canada the number one killer now is is cancer. And everybody says, oh, that's great that less people are getting heart disease. And I'm like, no, 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 the same number of people are getting heart disease. But now the end stage treatment of that disease and keeping people alive, it, we're getting better at it. And so we're very good at, you know, end stage treatments and keeping people alive. But as you point out, the health span uh, that you enjoy is much, it's not kept up with lifespan. So everything that we're talking about today, protein, exercise, etc., it, it's all around just promoting, a, as you point out, the more kick-ass portion of your, your, of your life, right? And then right at the end is just dropping right off. And that's, you know, ask anybody that works out down here. They, they, they don't, none of them really sort of fear death, but they, they talk about, I want to go like this, you know, and not sort of just gradually uh, drift down into like a not a great lifestyle, health style, have to be taken care of, etc. But that's sort of what uh, most of uh, our society has become. I don't think there's any question. You're so, so, so right. And I think we're redefining the narrative now. We're looking now at quality. So to that end, let, let's talk just, you know, you are a longevity expert as it relates to metabolism, muscle, protein, all the rest of it. Now, you talk about disuse events, but one of the things that happens just by way of age-related event is what happens in the seventh decade of life. What happens there? The sarcopenia of the seventh decade of life, and what the heck is that? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, sarcopenia um, is a—it's a parallel condition to when people talk about osteopenia being the precursor to osteoporosis. So sarcopenia uh, is to muscle what osteopenia is to bone. So we lose muscle as we get older, and I think all of us would sort of you know recognize that. We talk about people sort of getting smaller and definitely weaker and less able, etc. Um, so the idea is, is that, you know, when sarcopenia starts, we, you know, we could have an argument. For me, it's always a moving target. It's always one year uh, older than I am. But, but I think that, you know, for, for most people, uh, you can measure it demonstrably probably in your fifth or sixth decade of life. In your seventh decade of life, you're beginning to notice that there are activities that you probably could do before quite well that maybe you can't do quite as well. And that's a loss of strength and a loss of function that if we kept allowing ourselves to just gradually follow that path, 
um, we'd realize at some point there's something we can't do and that's going to limit what we can do in a given day. And if that's something is, you know, if it's going for a walk or being able to, you know, pick up your grandkids or whatever it is and you can't do it, then, you know, that's going to take something away that's, you know, part of your life that you think, you know, this is a really important thing. And this is where, you know, strength and function and heart, you know, cardiorespiratory fitness really come into uh, play. And, and, and I think that, uh, you know, trying to alleviate that or you're not going to like you can't stop aging. Aging wins. It's, it's no question. But it's about trying to mitigate the loss and changing the trajectory of the curve. So instead of a slight bend, it's more of like this. So I get it. We're all getting older. Um, is the is the slope like this or is it a really steep slope where you have one of the disuse events and then that's a real that's a watershed moment for an older person. So sarcopenia, this age related loss of muscle mass is a it's a key part of aging and it's the it's the core in terms of its preservation of preserving mobility as we get older. And so physical mobility everybody gets it, but you know the, the last step is being able to rise up and out of a chair. Once you can't do that, you're stuck on a toilet, you're in full-time institutionalized care, et cetera. So, and that's where most of us don't want to end up. I know. And the one thing I always think about from the very, I'm, I'm a body comp person, so I love that and um, have written a lot about it. And one of the things that uh, terrifies me more than anything else on this planet is frailty. You don't want frailty um, because once you hit frailty, there's no going back. That's a bad thing. And so... Um, anything you can to put money in the bank, in the muscle bank, um, to your point so that you mitigate um, that, uh, that deep dive um, once you have some age-related um, sarcopenia or muscle loss, well, th you know, then you've, you can spend yourself differently. Um, and, and I think that that's going to be super important. So, you know, one of the things uh, I spoke to you about in a prior conversation uh, we were having was that during COVID, a lot of people's fitness went straight to the dogs um, because, well, gyms were closed. We were in lockdown. Nobody's fault. And if you happen to have your own, you know, fitness room in your house, well, good for you. Um, and you had no excuse. However, the grand majority of people did not. And, um, you know, for those people who were so frustrated, they, they really didn't have access to the resources that they needed because all this happened so quickly. It's not like you can prep for it or something. Um, they, they lost some, you know, momentum here, and they also lost some muscle. So uh, if you're 60 years old or 70 years old or 65 – and, and you drop some of that because of, you know, uh, the pandemic and the rest of it. Now you're trying to come back. What is the realistic understanding of what you could actually build back? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the fundamental axiom or the truism is that, you know, when you're young, you go down, you have one of these events, you, you break your arm, break your leg, or you're in hospital, and you can recover, you bounce back. It's great to be young, you're, you can regenerate tissue, you can recover. Um, when you're older, uh, it, it's tough. Uh, it's, I don't think, you know, I think COVID was a, I'll call it a disuse event, we call it disuse light. So it's inactivity, um, that everybody did what they were told and they couldn't go to the gym and et cetera. Um, and, and, and those I think you can sort of smooth out a little bit, but if you have one of these true disuse events, if you're in hospital, uh, in the ICU and, you know, we, we've talked about, uh, you know, friends of ours who have experienced that, really, really tough to get back from. And I think it's sort of, it, it represents, I won't say irreversible, you can get some back, but for most people, they just sort of, they, they, they migrate from one curve down to another. There's a big steep decline, very tough to get back from. So as you point out, uh, and I think most people in the field of gerontology would agree, is that muscle, if it's nothing else, is functional reserve against those types of uh, events. Yes, it's a great reservoir of protein. And so sometimes your muscle gives that up for other more valuable processes like immune function, like red or uh, blood, blood proteins and that sort of thing. Um, and so you want to put something in the bank to sort of defend yourself against those. Something's going to happen that's going to, you're going to have to take some time off. You know, you just told me you had the, the flu and I get it. We all, and, and do you feel like working out? No, you don't. But um, 
it, it's possible to recover from those short events, but if it's you know hospitalization and bed rest, we know for sure every physician appreciates it. Get the patient up and out of bed as soon as possible because their prognosis for recovery uh, is much better when you do. So, uh, you know, I, I can't uh, overstate it anymore uh, to say that you want to try and have a lowest frequency as possible of those types of events and, and work really hard, as hard as you can to physically rehabilitate yourself from something that may be nothing related to physical uh, fitness, you know, a knee or a hip, but an event where you're not, you're doing less. And so work hard to, to recover from those for sure. I think that the recovery needs to involve functional movement because as you get older and, and I mean, I'm talking like age 50, 45, even whatever, you know, if you fall down on the ground, nobody else is around to help you. You know, you're a little behind, you know, getting up. I'm actually trying to refine my Turkish get up as we yeah. speak. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. All right. And yeah. um, it's starting to take on that kettlebell. Everyone mm. look up Turkish get up. It's a, it's ugly. Um, it's it's not easy. I'll tell you. So if you've never done it before, it's it, it's tough, especially if you've got a big kettlebell in your hand for sure. <laughs> I know. No, no, we don't have the big one yet. No, 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 no. Yeah. But there's a reason why the Turkish army did this. Um and, and they were all men. Just throwing that out there. Um, yeah. So the, the reason why I'm bringing this up in all seriousness is that we have to save our own life. So if, if I was going to be tripping on something, I don't want to break a hip. I don't want to break a, you know, a wrist or, you know, whatever the issue is. Um, and so I want to have excellent balance. Hello, functional balance. I want to have great flexibility so I can move very quickly in whatever planes um, so I can save myself. And at the same time, I need to have enough strength, truncal, core, all the rest of it. My glutes are the biggest muscle group and all the rest of it. So can I get up off the ground, you know, if I end up there for whatever reason? I mean, you know, we've all been there. Lord knows I've seen enough dirt down there. Um, and, you know, can you do this? Can you save your life? Well, instead of just now being incentivized by, I want to look so good in my jeans. Yeah. Can you just bag that for a minute? Because you're going to look good anyway, if you do exactly what we say, which means You've got to stay strong and you've got to do it strategically. So think to, think to yourself, what I usually ask people to do is get on the floor. Okay, now try to get up. Good luck. All right, so um, if you do something as simple as a bent knee push-up so that you start working, you know, all of the eight muscle groups at least, um, that you can actually do for a full leg, you know, um, extended uh, push-up. Well, that's wonderful because I love to multitask. So you're look at all those nice muscles you're working at the same time. If you could only do one beautifully, if you can now bring it up to two over the course of a week or two, loving it. Because what it tells me is you're getting stronger. And even though you know, at a certain age, especially after the age of 60, you can't really build back like huge, massive amount of lean body mass or anything. You can certainly strengthen that which you have. And one last little caveat. And as we close up, just throw in that little idea about something that you and I have talked about in the past, and that's creatine. So there's some very interesting literature on a very unique fuel source um, called creatine. So take it away. Yeah, um, you know, uh, I mean, creatine is as as a supplement. Um, I'm trying to think back when I was in grad school when I first heard it, it was a long time ago, <laughs> at least 30, 35 years ago. Um, and from that standpoint, I mean, at the time we were all it was a, it was a muscle based supplement, and we thought you know it's going to enhance your muscle function and everything else like that. Uh, and then people were about the risks of creatine. So here we are, 35, at least maybe 40 years further on. Um, there's been no epidemic of people with failing kidneys or anything else like that who are on creatine supplements. And so its safety record is is unparalleled, I think, as far as supplements go. Uh, I do think that the literature that's now coming out that's showing that the neuroprotective effects of creatine are... Uh, I mean, it's never something we thought about, but they're they're pretty astonishing in, in, in human trials as well as, you know, animals and everything else like that. So, uh, I mean, if there's a supplement that you're going to take, uh, I, I, I have a pretty short shelf for supplements. 
Uh, but creatine is one, uh, probably vitamin D because you know, live in Canada and as far north as we are, we, we don't get a lot of great sunshine, um, you know, particularly in the winter. And the other one would be omega-3 fatty acids. But creatine is the one uh, that I, I definitely recommend that most older people should, uh, should be taking. And, sure. and the research shows that you could actually, that in women, now this was, this was research in women who had always been fairly sedentary and they weren't exactly, you know, entering the Miss Olympia here. So yeah, when they yeah, were doing yeah. the weight training, it was light yeah. stuff and yeah. blah, blah, blah. But even with that, they were able to build muscle correct? Yeah. 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 And, and, and you know, I think this uh, a part of um, what's going on there is one thing that we know that happens when you age is that your muscle and about every tissue's ability to be able to generate energy is impaired. And that's maybe what creatine is sort of buffering or defending against. And uh, yeah, to your point, uh, gain, impressive gains in, in, in lean mass uh, in lots of different populations. So as a supplement goes, uh, aside from protein, which I, I don't talk about supplemental protein, but dietary protein, creatine is uh, is on the list for sure. I love it. And and ever since, you know, I became aware of this through a number of colleagues, some of whom you and I share, um, I have been so impressed with the literature that um, I'm now using it. Uh, and um, I, I've found no major problems. And I am in the process of trying to build back a little bit of that. I dropped a couple little pounds during COVID because they closed my damn gym, but now I have my own gym. So I am armed and dangerous. Um, and I also have no excuse, uh, cause it's, it's right there for me. So, you know, Stuart, you have just been a fount of knowledge. I, I can't thank you enough. And on behalf of, you know, our entire audience here with the, her podcast, um, thank you so, so much. Um, for being able to gift us with this information about this all-time essential macronutrient and, and what women really need to do to stay strong and to have that health span, um, you know, maintaining a level of uh, robust and vibrant life. I think that that's really what the outcome is here. That's what we want more than anything else. So now we're we're highly informed and enlightened, thanks to you. It's, it, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate you giving me the platform for sure. Excellent. And um, oh my gosh, Stuart, I, I just can't thank you enough. All right. Now, everyone out there, please go ahead to iTunes and hit that little mm, and rate and review the show because I want to hear from you because I'm Dr. Pam Peak. I'm host of the Herb Podcast. Look, follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peak or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peak MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on Radio MD, iTunes, and all of the major platforms. We're spinning it out there and sharing this wisdom and wit. Mm, yes. Thanks for listening. Listen, stay safe and stay well.